0: We take a look back at a movie not based on a comic book, yet a really great comic book movie. And we pay tribute to a Hollywood living legend. On this episode of Moving Panels, we discuss Unbreakable. Welcome to Moving Panels, the podcast where we discuss movies and TV shows based on, inspired by, and adapted from the world of comic books. I'm your host, Laramie Wells. Joining me today is Chad Smith.
1: On one end of the spectrum, you, Laramie, a DC fan. On the other end of the spectrum, me, a Marvel fan. But we have the same weakness, comic books. <laughs> that was my very, very poor attempt to, uh, to. I don't know. That's not an impersonation. That was just me completely riffing. Okay. Yeah. It, it, it was good work. Very good work. <laughs> um,
0: very good. Well, uh, for anybody who listened to the episode that was released earlier this week, uh, this is a, uh, a second attempt at recording this episode uh, due to some technical issues that Chad and I had. Um, we were unable to release this Unbreakable episode, so here we are trying again, and if you can faintly hear Chad giggling a little bit, it's because we've already had issues trying to record it this time.
1: Yeah, I mean this this issue is well earned, listener. Like it's uh, lots of work went into it. <laughs> yeah, but but as you as you heard from earlier this week,
0: I'm a huge Bruce Willis fan, and so I am bound and determined to get this episode out because I want to recognize Bruce Willis uh, it,
1: by doing Unbreakable, the the greatest comic book movie that's not a comic book movie.
0: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's not a comic book movie, but it's not the first time we haven't done non-comic book stuff before. Uh, but yeah, like Chad said, it's a great comic book movie. So um, we we had to do it. Yes, there are others. Like I, I mentioned in the, uh, the episode I released earlier. I mean, we could have done uh, Sin City, A Dame to Kill For, but I didn't want to put myself through that
1: uh, <laughs> for this tribute. Um, yeah, you want a watch to be on a high note. I mean, yeah, so...
0: and we, we could have watched Red. That I, yeah, Red, I enjoyed Red's Red. Red yeah. was a good one, um, but I just thought that Unbreakable because it, as much as Bruce Willis kind of broke the mold with Die Hard, and or not broke the mold, but he kind of created new barriers for action heroes. It kind of did the same thing in Unbreakable. With what a superhero movie could be, and we'll get into that as we talk about this. All right, so Unbreakable was released November twenty-first of the year two thousand. I cannot say that without thinking of Conan, <laughs> Conan O'Brien. I just, yeah, yeah, cannot, <laughs> cannot. In cannot. the
1: year two thousand.
0: <laughs> yeah. uh, of course, it was written and directed by M. Night Shyamalan, Shyamalan uh, who, yeah. yeah Shyamalan, Sh- Shyamalan, how are you pronounce it? Sorry. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, I I think I always say Shyamalan. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if that Y is should be emphasized a little bit more, but uh, he's pretty much riding on the tail of Six Cents. Uh, here we got another movie with Bruce Willis, and uh, hopefully it'll be good. But the thing was, was that it was probably the first of his movies that even though he was famous for doing the twist ending, it was probably the first of his movies that was promoted one way and then presented another way. So... Yeah. Yeah. He wanted it to be promoted as a comic book movie. This is clearly a comic book movie. He opens it up. With all of these facts about comics, he wanted this to be a comic book movie. However, Disney, who owns Touchstone, who released the movie, because um, Touchstone is pretty much the way Disney releases their you know more adult movies, um, they wanted to get, say, no, 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 Six Sense was a hit. It, it, you know, everything you release has to look like Six Sense. It has to look like it's a thriller.
1: And, I mean, one of these days, Disney is really going to pull their head out and realize that that comic book movies are doable. So, I mean, I'm just waiting for that day, (laughs) Laramie. Yeah. Yeah. uh, If only. If only.
0: (laughs) If only. Uh I, it, I can't help it. I can't help but, I can't help but say. Then, then there's the other end of that, where the reality is, uh, Warner Brothers needs to actually figure <laughs> out that.
1: But that's a whole other topic. But I mean, I do uh, understand what you're getting at. It was um, marketed strangely, uh, more in the. Kind of horror genre almost like yeah. it was a thriller, which to be fair, it kind of is. But, uh, but I could definitely, uh, agree with what you're saying that they were, they were really trying to bank some money on it being a follow up to The Sixth Sense, not a, a comic book movie. So, yeah. which is what, uh, Shalman wanted to make.
0: Yeah. And, and the thing was, this is the year 2000. So we're right at, the infancy of the rebirth of yeah. superhero movies. You know, Batman had come out in 89, 89 and had really kind of lit the pilot light. You and, know, yeah. So, su- Superman, Superman was the, the first, but Superman's flame had died out by, you know, mm-hmm. the late eighties. Um, and there wasn't anything else. I mean, Marvel had tried it with Howard, the duck bomb, uh, <laughs> The Punisher with Dolph Lundgren bombed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then of course there's the infamous Fantastic Four movie we talk about all the time that was never actually released. Um, and then DC comes in with Batman '89 and kind of lights the pilot light again. Yeah, but then it's it's still a slow burn, and it, it's not till almost ten years later with Blade in '98 right. that all of a sudden we get. A flame out of that pilot light. Yeah, and then we get X Men just four months before this movie, and now now we're starting to the the fire starting to burn. Um, and even though this isn't based on a comic book movie, uh, or comic book,
1: it is a comic book movie. Um, well, I like to say that it's not based on a comic book; it's based on all comic books. Like, I mean, yeah. Yeah, this isn't some revelation. I mean, uh, Samuel L. Jackson's character literally spins the movie referencing how what is happening is is uh, like boiled down comic book lore. So,
0: yeah, I love love everything he does about how comics are, you know, it's history just written in a different way. Right, that it's. Things that really happened, but they were exaggerated. You know, it's like the old, it's just, it's like the game of telephone. You know, someone told someone this happened and then they exaggerated it when they told someone else it happened. And eventually you've got, you know, a man who can fly. The birth of mythology.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: This is, this is such a great movie. It's great storytelling. And when you, even and again, if you're listening to this, you, you, of course, know we're spoiling the crap out of it. But I mean, the movie is twenty, the movie is twenty two years 22 old. Twenty two years old. Go so, see it.
1: if you haven't yeah, seen it. So,
0: yeah, if you haven't seen it, uh, just go ahead. hit pause. <laughs> go down to your local blockbuster. Um, yeah, no joke. Oh, check man. out the VHS of Unbreakable. Um, pop it into your VH uh, your VCR. You know, make sure you sit through all those wonderful, you know, uh, coming soon to a theater near you previews.
1: So, yeah. Uh, Uh, so nostalgia wise, since you're kind of walking down that road in a very funny way, um, you and I had met like, I mean, two months before this movie came out and I, we didn't go see it together or anything like that. But, uh, did you see this one in the theater? I did. I did go see this in the theaters. Um. In the small, I, I, at, at, in State, Oh yeah. Or, yeah, yes, in the yeah, <laughs> nice.
0: yeah, in the. Uh, I don't think it was in the uh, mugs and movies theater, right? But I definitely did go see it in the theater, uh, you know, behind the small. Yep. Uh, and um, I actually think I went on a date to see to see it as well. Nice. Uh, sadly, <laughs> I do not remember her name. Um, but it doesn't matter. I've got Bethany now, so that was the one that was important. Yep. Um but uh I was I saw this in theaters and I remember when it ended. I was like I just watched a movie that was the it, issue number 1 right. of a comic book.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. It is yeah. It I is just the watched origin an origin story. story.
0: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I just watched the origin story of a superhero. I mean not I will say, you know, now with us, this, this being, you know, we're recording this in April of 2022, so Spider-Man: No Way Home, uh, just came out, and it's amazing. You finish that movie and you realize, wow, I just watched three movies that made up the origin of Spider-Man.
1: <laughs> yeah, nice. So I, I do like that. Um, and again, like I'm not coming up with some groundbreaking take on this or something, but. Uh, you know, M Night Shyamalan is um he what he does is turn tropes on their head. I mean, that's that's what oh, yeah. he's famous for, and he does it uh, with this. But the the cool thing about it is he can pull off because I mean, a lot of people try to do that sort of thing, and often it just comes across as like parody or a poor copy, you know, kind of thing. But what he does with uh, this movie in particular, I think, is brilliant because you take a group of people, comic book fans, who are very serious about their material. Like, you have to walk a thin line between making fun of them, and let's be honest, we're a, kind of a touchy crowd, and uh, and and... <laughs> doing something new fresh and original that gives you a new take on the thing that you love so much so it, it he has kind of this fine line to walk and i think that since the explosion of this is all just you know me r- uh, riffing it's it's all just yeah. thoughts in my head but yeah. uh i think since the explosion of the comic book movie i don't know that you could make this movie today like i, I feel like no. Most filmmakers would be scared to do this because, uh, you know, comic book people take this stuff so seriously and and uh, and it's such a large and, let's be honest, lucrative population at this point. Uh, I don't know that he could pull this movie off uh, now. No,
0: but, but that's what's so great about it. I mean, it's just like with The Sixth Sense. You couldn't make a movie like The Sixth Sense really. Today, because or the Blair Witch Project, which came around at around this time, I mean that was the staple for the found footage movie. Every other found footage movie that came after that, you just watched it going, "Yeah, I've seen this." Right. Um. So that yeah, that's totally the case. You know, you put this out right at the perfect moment um, of where we weren't saturated with uh, comic book movies and uh, at. I all I have always said that Hollywood ha- is running out of original ideas. M. Night Shalomon came up, came in right here in, you know, ninety nine with the sixth cents, and all of a sudden I'm going, Hey, we've got original movies again. Right. And that's exactly what he did with this movie.
1: I mean, uh, unfortunately, never seen anything like it. Unfortunately he ran out of those relatively quickly. He did. But uh He did. He also made uh the The Last Airbender. So but that wasn't an original idea. Like, uh, I mean, yeah. let's be fair. You know, he he tried yeah. to adapt something else. But, anyways, that's the whole other story. Yeah, uh, we're not talking about him Night. Shalama. We're we're honoring
0: Bruce Willis. Um, you know, as I stated in the episode earlier this week, uh, for anybody who who did not hear, uh, Bruce Willis has decided to step away, uh, pretty much retiring from acting. Uh, because of his uh diagnosis of um aphasia i think is how you pronounce it mm. um which is a condition that affects uh his language and speech uh which of course is very very important for not only an actor but for an actor like
1: Bruce Willis this would be like if tom brady got hand cancer like it just yeah. it's really sad uh, to to see a guy who is such a excellent communicator to be cut down uh, mentally in his ability to communicate. It's, uh, it's really tragic. Yeah. Yeah. But, and, and you know, and again,
0: you can act. Uh, I mean, this, this, This year, we're we're right off the cusp of uh, the Academy Awards from a few weeks ago. We're not going to get into things that happened in the Academy Awards, (laughs) but with a movie like Coda, um, which featured so many uh, deaf, you know, in in some cases mute actors, you know, you definitely can uh, relay a lot without acting. I mean, even go back a few more years with a movie, yeah. uh, Excuse me, yes, without speaking. you know, you go back a few more years with the artist that also won the Academy Award, which was purposely made as a silent, silent film. film. Yeah, And there's a lot we'll talk about as we go through this episode of how much Bruce oh, Willis was able to relay in this movie with probably doing the least amount of talking he's ever done in yeah. a movie.
1: I, I would say that there are, uh, you could can probably can't find one, you know, episode of TV he's done that he had less lines in than this entire film. He yeah. really he, he but he acts his heart out. Yeah. Yeah, this is this is one that really shines
0: uh for Bruce Willis and that is again why we wanted to to talk about it. So I mean we're already talking about let's go ahead and get into the characters and since we're already talking about Bruce and since he is the the main star, we'll talk about Bruce Willis who played David Dunn, already got that nice alliteration there that we'll talk about mm-hmm. uh, a little bit more, but we got David Dunn, and as David Dunn, as we just said, Bruce, I mean, Bruce is, has always been known as this, you know, bouncing off the wall action star, you know, he was the comedic action star, he was the the action star with the one-liners,
1: mm-hmm.
0: You know, uh, you know, come on down to the coast, we'll get together, have a few laughs. Welcome to the party, pal. You know, all, all of those great lines from Die Hard. He did it again in Last Boy Scout. You know, he would uh, do it in a lot of his other movies. Um, always kind of the wisecracking uh, action star. And then you get to this, and again, a comedic actor. He right. started off as a comedic actor. And you get to this movie, and he is so quiet. And his character is such a introverted character Mm -hmm. you know he's not that you know outgoing character that he usually plays he's quiet he's reserved
1: it almost feel it almost feels like he is uncomfortable talking to people well yeah he is i mean his wife confronts him on it his estranged wife confronts him on it and uh and even asks him like do you hold back from from me and your son and he's he pauses for a silent moment (laughs) and just says, yeah. And uh, I think the scene that this is the most telling is when she kind of confronts him when they're um, thinking about getting back together, things are are going well. And uh, there's about a four minute scene where she is basically monologuing in a door frame and the back of Bruce's head is all you see of him you see her on the other side of the door so you're you're kind of like oh, looking over his shoulder and he literally says yes well, like no no he says no i'm sorry he he replies to her no that he never cheated on her he wasn't with another woman while they were estranged and so that's his sole line in that scene uh and yet it's riveting and uh there's there's just several scenes like that i know we'll talk about one in particular Uh, toward the climax of the movie, but I don't want to ruin that yet, but (laughs) yeah, he, he does an amazing job. There's a ton of just communicating with his eyes in this movie. Uh, just a lot of
0: the scene between he and his son once it's revealed.
1: Yeah. That, yeah, that's it, what that's I mean, yeah. I was that, about to say I think that's now that I'm saying it. I was like that's the scene he's probably yeah. <laughs> talking about talking. But yeah. uh but even before that, just a ton of vulnerability. Like you you can watch this man's face become confident through this movie. Like it's crazy. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, virtually no speaking, but he just he acts his pants off. So uh So, let's talk about the character. Let's talk about David
0: Dunn. So, one of the things I like, and again, this goes to characters that Bruce Willis has played. You know, John McClane was the first everyman action star. You know, it was, this is just a regular guy who is in this over-the-top situation. You know, he's not the overly muscular Sylvester Stallone, Arnold Schwarzenegger type action star. Or or some...
1: Prior, you know, special forces operator. You know, yeah, yeah, like the... none of the, that sort of yeah. stuff,
0: like the Chuck Norris type stuff and whatnot. Yeah, he's not a trained martial artist or yeah. Navy SEAL. I mean, he's a cop, but he's just a, a, beat a street cop. cop. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's so. yeah. Um, and and so it gave a whole different look at a uh, an action star. Well, in this movie, he's playing a guy who, as we. Discover is a superhero, but he's
1: a flawed human. I don't, I don't think that's like a new revelation. There are lots of flawed superheroes introduced in comic books. I would kind of argue. Well, no, but where, I'm ta- no, no. I'm talking about in movies, though.
0: Yeah, like how many flawed superheroes had we had in movies at this point?
1: Yeah, not a lot for yeah. sure. Um, I and I don't know that you'd seen anything that gave you. Kind of trepidation about becoming a superhero for sure, like uh, you know the the because it takes him a long time to to really come around through this movie to that this kind of might be his calling. It whereas yeah. you know generally speaking up until this point, if you found out you had superpowers, it was time to kick some the montage. Butt, it's montage you know? time. Yeah,
0: and <laughs> yeah. let's go play around with our powers out in
1: you know some field or on the rooftop or in some warehouse. Yeah. And uh and I think the other thing that um it was written so well in the sense that it is like I was talking about about it just being a little off-kilter for regular uh comic book stuff. Uh how I can't name another one where a middle-aged man becomes a superhero. You know what I mean? Like I wouldn't call him over the hill but like he's yeah. He's kind of past his prime. Like they they allude to the fact that he was this like exceptional college athlete, and that those mm-hmm. days are over. And you know he's just kind of living in the shadow of his, you know, former athletic greatness, and and all this sort of stuff. And uh you're talking about so, before
0: this movie, right? Right. Before yeah.
1: Yeah, and and so, um, I'm referring to David Dunn in particular. Like he's he's living in no, the no, shadow. I'm, I'm of, talking
0: of... about there. I'm talking about a middle-aged person, you know, becoming a superhero,
1: that aspect, like you're talking about before this movie, because right, really that... Tony Stark
0: is a middle-aged person who becomes, right. A superhero. I'm, I'm but, saying
1: before yeah. this movie, you, you yes. had not really had that. Um, so, uh, yeah, you know, it, it was an anomaly in that sense. Like it wasn't written about a kid who gets bit by a radioactive spider and, you know, has a coming-of-age story along with a coming-of-powers story, uh, which yeah. is which is kind of the prototypical, you know, deal with comic books. Uh, you know, this guy's got a son he's thinking about and a wife that he's trying to patch a relationship up with. These are not normal origin story comic book issues. Yeah.
0: And, but... But going back to what I originally said about being flawed, you know, I'm just thinking about that that opening scene oh, on the yeah. train, where he takes his ring you know? off, yeah, and he takes his ring off uh, to flirt with the the sports agent, um, you know, and so we immediately see, okay, yeah, you know, he's not perfect, um, but we we get those moments, and and I, as much as you know, it's it's a a thing you don't typically associate with a superhero. It it does show you this is a regular guy, right? You know, um, you know, not that every guy does that, but it was to emphasize the fact that he's a regular guy. Yeah, he's not you know? the
1: super moral, yeah. you know, pinnacle of of uh, you know flawless existence or anything. No, but because
0: again, he clearly, as Chad said, he clearly wants the relationship between he and his wife to work out. Um, or else you wouldn't have that scene that once he does decide to step into the role of a superhero, you know, he comes home and just picks his wife up, carries her upstairs. Yeah, You know? <laughs> uh, which is a, a great scene, too, that has no dialogue in it. Yep. Um, uh, but let, let's go ahead, just getting through the characters, let's move on to our other main character, Elijah Price, a.k.a. Mr. Glass. Played by Samuel L. Jackson. This is actually the fourth movie that Bruce Willis and Samuel L. Jackson have been in together.
1: Trying to think. I'm not. Die Hard with a Vengeance. Okay. All
0: right. Uh, And then you've got. um, uh, Why did my mind just go blank? Pulp Fiction.
1: Of course. Yeah. I'm not forgetting
0: Pulp Fiction. Pulp Fiction, and then I count this one Loaded Weapon One.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll give it to you
0: because Bruce has a cameo, right? It, 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 star- it stars Samuel Jackson and Mio Estevez, but Bruce has a cameo. That's so funny. that this is the fourth movie that they have been in together.
1: Yeah, I guess I really didn't think for some reason that Die Hard with a Vengeance came out before this, but yeah, it very much did. So, oh, yeah. I heard
0: yeah. the vintage came out like early early
1: 90s. Yeah, I don't know. It just for some <laughs> reason was later to me. Um I, man, I uh I know we've been throwing a lot of love Mr. Willis's way, but this is one Rightfully of the, so. This is one of the best performances for Samuel L. Jackson in my opinion. Uh Yeah. He is known for, you know, the swagger that he has. You know, you think about pulp fiction, you think of those kind of roles. Uh he's really vulnerable yo know, he's literally a fragile literally, human yeah. in this movie uh plays a, a character as a fragile man and he he does a really good job of being this vulnerable um uh character and he acts he also acts a lot in his face just the the way you see him process stuff the way he kind of shields himself against disappointment but you can see like the sparkle of hope that he keeps hoping that David Dunn will figure out that he is a hero and and that uh glass can be some sort of catalyst to get that hero into the world you know those sort of things he you you see all of it on his face and and he does an amazing job as well yeah
0: what well, what did you what do you think of his look in this? Because it is a very you oh, talked dude, about his very, swagger. Yeah. It's a very different look for Samuel L. Jackson.
1: It is. It's uh well, I mean, obviously he was he being M Night Shyamalan, not Samuel L. Jackson. Sorry. Uh, it was Pronouns. stylistically designed to uh, replicate a lot of comic book tropes. So you have the whole um, purple, uh, you know, being his color that that signifies him throughout the movie. And what I love about that is how stylistically they even used it uh in varying degrees because you you really don't see much purple. it's all very muted and um you know kind of dingy and brown like but the the closer he becomes to the end and the reveal that he is the opposite of David Dunn that he is actually the mastermind villain that uh you know he he becomes this more flashy purple the more uh kind of power he has uh and um, stuff like I love the scene where he's trying to convince Dunn of who he is when he's at the stadium and uh and David Dunn you know is just trying to do his job and all this kind of stuff and he's not convinced by it and he winds up going into the stadium well uh the glass character follows uh, this criminal that Dunn has um, you know, picked out kind of gun. via ESP, whatever you want to call it, just his extra sensory things that he has as a as a hero, and I love he's in this really muted kind of bronze and a little bit purple suit, and as he crosses the road, you see his coat flap open, and it's just mm-hmm. this bright purple liner, and so they they did a great job with that, and uh. Which mimic uh, the, other the one uh, that, that stands out is the his, his mimic hair. The envelope. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. The envelope. that the... David
0: opens. Yeah, it's it's that same kind of silvery envelope, and then he opens it, and it's got the bright purple on the inside.
1: Yeah, so. but which also mirrors the bright purple wrapper that his mom put the first comic book that she comic gave book, him yeah. in on the on the um, bench at the very beginning of the movie uh but yeah so um the other thing that that kind of immediately pops out to me is uh, is his hair i love oh, yeah. the i love that kind of asymmetrical look they give him just to make him very different than all of his other roles i mean obviously he's, he is a bald man in a quite a the majority of his movies i would say uh but he has this large hair that is asymmetrical and i think it's uh, in the beginning of the movie the first time you see him as an adult you know, he's talking through this panel of art that he's trying to sell mm-hmm. this guy about all these motifs of uh, of heroes versus villains. And it's cool because he gives you some of the stuff about David Dunn too, you know, the, the square jaw and the, you know, all this kind of stuff. But uh, he points out in that piece of art that uh, typically villains have a disproportionate head to their body size. Yeah. Uh, and I think they get, I think they kind of mirror that using the hair, for uh for glass, but
0: yeah, and even when you're talking about that jacket that he's wearing uh in that scene you know that jacket is very form fitting yeah it is so yeah. it's it's helping to make his body look a lot slimmer than you know the top part of his because I think doesn't it even have a big collar yeah. so it again gives that illusion yeah. of you know bigger on the top and uh and slimmer on the bottom yeah so yeah, I didn't look up who who costumed this movie but you know, great job there with uh, kind of the way they costumed Elijah
1: so the one thing I will criticize and I just don't understand it what do you think about the glass cane uh that it would be it would it would be very um,
0: unuseful
1: yeah uh. I just I'm like I I kind of this seems more like a you know, a liability than, than something to rely on in my opinion yeah. I don't know
0: but. Yeah, I yeah. Not definitely don't see it as something that uh you would want to be putting your weight on yeah. um to, I, to help I mean, yourself walk.
1: Yeah, I I mean I, I get the visual, but maybe it's a to me it was a little too on the nose. And far be it from me to criticize uh somebody who you know has made their living making beautiful movies, but I just I don't think the, the visual of the cane shattering really added anything in my opinion uh, so you know I don't know
0: but it, but he, he's glass and he shatters <laughs> like glass I, again uh, a
1: little on the nose <laughs> yeah but, but
0: again if that cane had fallen and it just did like a you know like a, <laughs> a, a just a shatter but held to like it was plexiglass or something <laughs> I don't guess it would have been as uh, as good of a, a visual yeah. uh, let me ask you this about uh, Elijah. So I read that there was a professor for the University of Houston by the name of Audrey I'm going to assume it's uh, Um, don't know how to pronounce the last name but she said that the character of Elijah Price fits a movie trope of the magical African American character who helps the white hero. So mm-hmm. uh, for anybody who doesn't realize what I'm talking about um, if you think about movies like uh, the Green Mile, you got John Coffey mm-hmm. is the magical African-American who he's really there to help Tom Hanks' character right. uh, in his journey. Um, Legend of Bagger Vance, you got Will Smith helping out Jim Caviezel's mm-hmm. character. Uh, you got Ghost, where Whoopi Goldberg is helping out Demi Moore. Sister uh, What Act. Dreams...
1: I'm sorry, that just... <laughs>
0: No, uh, you know, what dreams may come cuba gooding jr. Yeah. Being the guide for Robin Williams family man where Don Cheadle is helping Nicholas cage, you know, and they're all, they all have this magical quality about them. Um, you know, whether they're a ghost, whether they have some power, uh, or like an angel, kind of like what, uh, uh, cuba gooding jr. And I guess Don Cheadle are supposed to be Mm -hmm. in, uh, those two movies. Um, I mean, even Morgan Freeman in just about every movie he's in, right. uh, you know, when he's literally, uh, a magical or I don't guess I would say magical, but when he's like God in Bruce almighty yeah. and Evan almighty. Yeah. Um, but even, you know, my favorite movie Shawshank Redemption, I mean, he, he as read, although not magical, mm-hmm. he's there to, you know, help Andy Dufresne. Mm hmm. Um, in his story, and you could even argue that him as Lucius Fox to help out Batman in the Dark Knight trilogy,
1: the the Um, talents and gifts of a black man assisting, you know, the white man's the white hero, yeah, uh, or the white hero's Um, triumph, yeah. I I can definitely understand that critique, and you know, without reading her paper and what she is alleging against it, you know, I, I can't really say yay or nay whether I agree with her, but. Um, just on face value of of her saying that this movie also fits that trope, I might push back a little bit. I think that this movie's smarter than that, and, and that's not putting other movies down. I mean, yeah. tropes are there because it is culture, and we all take some things for granted and stuff like that, uh, and, and we do need to learn over time to do it better, but the, I kind of feel like this movie doesn't do that in a lot of ways because really uh elijah gets what he wants in the end he's the one that engineers all of this Uh, and again you know massive spoilers but you know he he has gone to great lengths to find his opposite in david dunn and it's kind of funny because while he intellectually knows that it's his opposite he feels like he's the hero for for finding and giving the world you know a superhero is is kind yeah. of the take i get on it so at the end of the day despite um the one thing i'll really criticize about this movie the very poor uh NYPD blue ending it gets uh that i don't like <laughs> yeah. but elijah wins like he he doesn't care about going to to jail he won he did what he came to accomplish yeah i I totally agree um there's there's really not a lot of other characters talk
0: about uh you do have audrey and joseph dunn um played by robin wright penn at the time Mm -hmm. and spencer treat clark respectively uh anything particular you want to bring up about Either of those two characters or the
1: actor's performances? (laughs) Well, total side note, at the beginning credits, I saw Robin Wright, Penn, and I went, oh yeah, she was married to Sean Penn for a little (laughs) while. Who who remembered that? But anyways, uh, both of those characters, while relatively small roles, are super critical to David Dunn's um, eventual development. Yeah. Uh, realization of his his superpowers, and uh, especially without, and, and it's it's really interestingly written because they're kind of polar opposites, his son and his wife, because his wife is the reason he doesn't fulfill you know his destiny earlier in life, uh, yes. because she doesn't want him to have a violent existence like a a football player, and you would you know kind of superheroing is probably little more violent arguably than that even yeah and uh and then but his son is the one that like believes from the word go like he is he is into this he um you know very much believes that his dad is is a hero and and can accomplish these things and is willing to shoot him apparently <laughs> to, to oh yeah proof it. Uh, but so so that's, both that's of them a good are on scene these, Kind of, they both love him, but are fighting for his soul in in different ways, and it makes for some interesting tension. Uh, and both of them are fantastic actors. I mean, uh, you know, Robin Wright, obviously known as a, a very talented actress, and uh, but she she does and, and amazing Buttercup work from in the Princess Bride, yeah, <laughs> and uh uh and the kid, man, that kid. There are a couple of times where there's just a conversation. Between father and son, and there aren't any words. And uh, we we yep. were gonna, we might as well go ahead and talk about it. But the the climactic scene when after uh David Dunn has fought, what do we call him? The man in orange. I mean,
0: yeah, well, I don't, I, I don't he, really. I don't think he was given a name, <laughs> but <laughs> he's just the man. Yeah. The- the Orange Man. I don't know what you want to say.
1: And you have, I don't know, what would you say? Probably about a ninety-second scene where all it is is the two of them at the table, and the the news is playing in the background. And uh, Bruce pushes the paper across the table, and the son sees yeah. the article about the the you know hooded man who saves family. And uh, and Bruce just slowly pulls his finger up to his lips to tell him not to, you know, giving him the shush, you know, don't don't mm-hmm. say anything. Uh, motion and man, the the two of them just tight shots from one face to the other, and it's brilliant.
0: Yeah, yeah, it it's great. And that that guy, I mean, he's still working. Yeah. Um, but as a child actor, there was so because you know he was um he was Jeff Bridges' son in Arlington Road. Do you remember that movie? No. Yeah. Arlington Road was the one where uh uh Tim Robbins and Jeff Bridges and he suspects uh Jeff Bridges uh, suspects that his neighbor is a um is a terrorist.
1: I really vaguely remember that, but you know. Yeah,
0: that that just popped into my head. Um <laughs> and then of course he also he also played uh uh wasn't he um Joaquin Phoenix's son in Gladiator?
1: Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. and he's great at that the tiny tiny bit of time you get to see him but or not he's not Joaquin Phoenix's son he's the sister's son oh the sister's but anyways, son okay yeah, yeah neither here nor there but yeah yeah he he's um, Commodus's nephew
0: yeah and of course he he came back into a comic book movie cuz or i say movie it was a television show you know he played uh Von Strucker in Agents of Shield yeah so but <laughs> nice. But yeah, no, he gives a great performance. That scene is probably, if I were to to pick a favorite scene, that would probably be one of my favorites. It's, it's just the pretty awesome, yeah, yeah, the moment between father and son. I mean, I even like his his performance when David is lifting the weights. Yeah, and yep, he's just, just every the, time you see him,
1: yeah, slowly he's back, further him back up until he's further up the back. stairs part of the way. The yeah. last one, yeah. And his just his like questionless belief is cool. Like you Yes. You believe him as as a son of that age, just like remembering when you thought your dad, you know, could do anything, kind of stuff. And then he kind of realizes my dad can do anything. Pretty much can, you do know, anything. And, yeah. <laughs> so it's uh yeah, it's the really scene, cool. Yeah.
0: Uh, again another great scene, the scene where um uh, he's playing football. Yeah. with all the kids and the, the one football player. And he runs up and tells his dad, he goes, I told all of them that, you know, you could beat any of them. And, uh, you know, he said, why don't you come and play? And, yeah. of course, David chooses not to. But but then he immediately said, I'm going to go home and work out. He goes, okay, guys, I got to go with my dad.
1: You know, yeah. I mean, he's just, it's a great, they're, they're telling a great story out of this. And, you know. Bringing up that scene, I hope I'm not changing gears too much, but bringing up that scene is another one of those uh, Sean Mulan, um turning the the tropes on its head moments because you're expecting, again, the montage thing you were talking about earlier. Like, yeah, yeah. you know, he should, it, it's a perfect setup. Here's this uh, kid from Penn State who you learned in the opening scenes is a, you know, all-American and potential NFL player and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And so it's set up for Dunn to go down there and miraculously beat this kid in his prime who's NFL talent, you know, and everything. And he doesn't. He just decides to go home and work out instead. And it's just there's a series of those events where you're expecting him to do the superhero thing, and he doesn't. He just passes it on because he doesn't believe yet.
0: Do you love movies of a certain age? Do you miss the days of VHS tapes and VCRs and video rental stores? Does the thought of another 80s movie being remade seem inconceivable? If you want to go back to school, back to the future, or even back to the beach, then the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast is for you. I'm Tim Williams, the creator and host of And on each episode, I'm
1: joined by a guest co-host as we revisit a different 80s flick to discuss our first-time watch memories, iconic scenes, and even learn some behind-the-scenes stories along the way.
0: New episodes drop every other Friday on your favorite podcasting platform. So make like a tree, get out of here, and go listen to an episode of the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast. All right, well, there's not really a lot to say in terms of moving panels because, again, this is not based on a comic <laughs> book. But as Chad said, it's based off of every comic book. Um, so let's talk about how this movie was filmed. Uh, I did make note of the cinematographer, Eduardo mm. Serra, uh, who did a beautiful job of making this movie look like a comic book. Yeah. You know, he he frame almost every shot is framed to where there is a you're you're looking at the shot through either like a window or a doorway or, you know, there's something reflected. about the shot. Yeah, there's something about the shot where you know exactly where to look on that screen. Right. You know, he draws your eye and I know that's the job of a cinematographer, but <laughs> he does it. He does it in the way that a comic book does, right. with like the the bubbles. You know exactly what order to read the bubbles in. You know exactly what order to go from one panel to the other. Right. You no, know, that is an art, and he ties in film cinematography, and comic book panel art. He ties them in together. Right. Part, and
1: he, yeah. Part of it is through very little, very sparse camera movement. Almost yes. all the shots are a still camera that has framed a shot. Uh, hmm. And in that shot, there are often frames like you're talking about, like you know Bruce standing in a doorway. Uh, I mentioned one earlier where you're looking over Bruce's shoulder. You see a lot of that in comic books. When, when one character is talking to the other, you, you see the over the shoulder kind of perspective. Uh, and you get that again at the end when, Uh, when you kind of from David Dunn's perspective are seeing, uh, Elijah explain that, that he's the villain and he did it all to, uh, to bring Bruce to the world, to bring David Dunn to the world. So, uh, yeah, it's, I agree. It's brilliantly shot to mimic, uh, moving panels. That's an interesting, (laughs) but, uh, uh, so, uh, hey, that's a, that's a great name, (laughs) Uh, Yeah, yeah, um, but but shots
0: like you you have where David Dunn and Elijah are talking at the stadium and they're standing in the uh, you know, the little tunnel Uh and you're thinking, you know, you know, a regular movie would go right up on them and have a two shot of the two of them talking. But he keeps the camera back so they're not even very brightly lit. The almost the walls to the Yeah, the walls to the side are very dark, and so it looks like you're watching, looking into a panel of a comic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, even going into some of the connection stuff, you know, everything with Mister Glass, with Elijah is connected in some way to glass. You know, not only his cane, but when we're first entered, the very beginning of the movie, yep, we're introduced to that character in a mirror. In a reflection in a yeah. mirror, which you don't even realize it's a reflection, it's so brilliantly
1: done. Yeah,
0: until a few moments into the scene, you know, like you talked about the camera movement. Yeah, the camera moves just a little just bit tiny. for you to all of a sudden to realize we're looking in a reflection.
1: Well, isn't it when the doctor looks up into the mirror to look at the yeah. uh the person behind him and and yeah. and you get just this tiny tilt and the doc yes. looks up and you're like, Oh, mm-hmm. oh okay, that was cool. Yeah. And and, and I you think you, you get to see the edge.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You get to see the edge of the mirror right at that same moment. And yeah, realizing and then and then we come later to uh back to Elijah is now a, a little boy. Mm-hmm. First time you see him, you're seeing him through the reflection of the TV. In
1: the TV. Yeah. An old, uh, you know, like convex TV. So it's this distorted mm-hmm. image. It's really cool.
0: Yeah. And then he looks at the kids playing in the playground and they, it's shot through the window. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you, see him looking through the window down at the kids, uh, see, sees the package that his mom's put on the, the, the shelf and all that. When, David finds the the invitation. You're seeing it through the windshield, mm-hmm. you know. And, and again, these great framed shots. Not only having that connection to the character through that, but also again that great cinematography.
1: Yeah, even I I would argue that one of the most uh, comic book panel like shots is uh, is when uh uh elijah goes down to the park and and gets that first comic book i can see the art where it's filmed through the the park bench the yes the present is sitting on the park bench you just see from a waist down this kid walking to the park bench turn around sit down put his hand on the that to me looks like comic book art like i can yeah. see that panel in a comic book so Brilliantly yeah. done.
0: Well, and then continuing on that, the comic book connections. You know, we already talked about the purple with glass, but there's color associated with right. everybody. I mean, David David has the green. You know,
1: green and and rust. I think is his yeah. like two is his color palette. And then every quote unquote villain that his superpower shows him uh, is yes. connected to a specific color.
0: Yeah, you got the you mentioned earlier the guy with the gun who's wearing I mean it's tan, it's like a tan camouflage, yeah. but they they I don't know if they're using some sort of post stuff, but they make that color look different Kinda, than anything yep. else in the scene. You know, um then when David's doing it uh in the um bus station Yeah. or train station, wherever it was that he was, uh you know, you've got the abusive mother who's in this bright pink uh suit or Whatever she's wearing, mm-hmm. you got the drug dealer played by M. Night Shyamalan, who's wearing the blue, blue jacket.
1: Yeah, that was back at the stadium. But yeah,
0: yeah, that was, yeah. Those were in the stadium. Yeah. Um. Then you, then you had the thief, the woman who steals the jewelry. She's in a red dress. Um. You had the guy who commits the hate crime. You know, throws the stuff mm-hmm. at the people from the car. He's in yellow. The like uh, the frat
1: boy rapist. Yeah. What it, uh. Yeah, that's yeah. maybe uh, the most disturbing one, but
0: yes, it very much is. Um, and let me remind everybody, uh, I took a date to see this movie. Um, <laughs> so, uh,
1: but uh, you know, and and, he's and in then the of course court. the man in orange, yeah, yeah, is is obviously yeah. very stylized. Yeah. Um. Uh, uh.
0: Really quick little trivia, and um, the man in orange was supposed to be. The Horde. Yeah. It was supposed it was to be split. the James McAvoy character that would then show up in Split, which, again, spoiler if you didn't know, Split is <laughs> technically a sequel to this movie.
1: Which, that movie's um, only, what, like 17 years old? So, you know, go watch Yeah, it. <laughs> Yeah.
0: Um, but but M. Night decided to cut that out because he wanted the movie to focus on David and Elijah. Right. You know, that they were the comic book quote-unquote characters. Uh, he didn't want to bring in this other uh, super-powered villain.
1: Well, and he even explains um, it with the mom at the very, at the end of the movie, you know, David Dunn stand there talking to Elijah's mom in the com- in not a comic shop, but in a uh, his art gallery and she's yeah. explaining that there's the drone villain uh, that's just the strong the henchman, you know. And then there's mm-hmm. the the mastermind villain. And and you know, she's telling you what has happened that you've seen yeah. the 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 strong arm villain, but you, have, you haven't you have been introduced yet, you know, to who the... Yeah, to the
0: man pulling the strings. Yeah. No.
1: But anyways, uh, another one, though, I, I want to go back just a second, talking about the stylized mm-hmm. stuff and it being so comic book. The other shot that, to me, is, like, straight from a comic book, I can see it as a panel, is David Dunn when he finally accepts... That he's the hero and stands in that train station and you see from behind as he starts to spread his hands out to his sides yeah. he's wearing the poncho uh you know he's just come from seeing the uh the train wreck that he was in he's in the NTS- he breaks into the ntsb building yeah. and he's seeing the, the wreck and he's starting to buy into it and he goes and he stands in the train station and he spreads his hands out to his side that to me is, is straight comic book panel and is very cool
0: well, and then they even give him his his hero moment. Um, you know, and again, we're jumping to the end here, but when the kids uh, save him out of the, the pool. Yeah. And he has that moment where he just stands up. Yeah. And you're like, he's a superhero now. You yeah. know, it's just, it's all he did was stand up, but yet that's his superhero moment. I know. It's yeah. so
1: cool. Which, uh, uh, let's like, Let's dissect that scene for a second. For one, uh one of my other very very minor criticisms of this movie, uh the fact that uh water is the shared uh weakness. Yeah, cuz cause,
0: yeah, cause when do we ever know that Elijah has a problem with water?
1: Yeah, I I don't remember that being part of his thing. So, I mean, I Unless guess he it's slips just left on it then,
0: I don't know. I mean, yeah if he slips on some water that would be a problem for yeah him. but yeah
1: but but water being but he
0: specifically <laughs> says that he, you swallow it too fast right
1: and he falls yeah. in a pool and doesn't swallow water too fast a uh, so again you know very very minor criticism of the movie making but uh water being your you know or or not fall into a pool like plastic cover and get wrapped up by that that had me cringing and i love like i'm a big time swimmer i love to swim and i was like yeah that's that's creepy no matter what so (laughs) yeah because because he you see him look to every
0: side and you just see those sandbags you know falling into sliding and then falling into the pool and i'm like yeah i don't care water doesn't have to be Water does not have to be your weakness if you're about to get wrapped up in a tarp. Yeah, <laughs> underwater you can't
1: swim in a tarp, dude. That, that doesn't work. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. But yeah, the kids saving him to me that's very um, you know Spider-Man when he gets carried over the train oh, passengers. Yeah. You know, it's that moment like the the yeah. the city takes care of the hero so that it, the hero can in turn save them kind of thing. So a uh, very cool scene. Yeah, great moment. Uh, and we got all
0: the other comic book connections. I mentioned earlier the uh, alliteration with the name David Dunn, you know, it goes right off with comic book characters like Peter Parker, Reed Richards, Bruce Banner, Matt Murdoch. Uh, I'll even throw in Clark Kent, even though it's a different letters, it's still same sound. Clark I mean, Kent. So
1: taking Clark Kent out of the equation, I mean, should they have given Stan Lee a writer's credit on this movie? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: is there is there a character I mean again Clark Kent, it's the same sound but it's I mean of course you got Lois Lane, Lex Luthor, uh all of those, but is there another superhero that was not created or partially created by Stan Lee? Stanley it has yeah. Yeah. I don't I don't know if there is. Uh, um
1: It very much was a Stan Lee calling card for for a long yeah. time, so.
0: Uh then you also have uh Elijah's comic the active comics, the one he, he yes. gets from his mom, yeah. which is made to look exactly like action, action comics. comics. Yes. Uh, it's the same font and layout uh, of action comics. Um, you have the stuff that, like David says, or not David, Elijah says at the end. You know, it's just like a in the comics where the superhero and the villain start out as friends, uh, yeah. and of course we've seen that so much. You know, Victor Von Doom and Reed Richards. We've seen seen that in their their origins, of course, there's been versions of where Lex and Clark Kent were friends mm-hmm. before they became the uh, became enemies, and so we've seen a lot of that. So you had that whole aspect, um, and I will even throw in we've we've talked about it a, a couple of times already. The scene where Joseph pulls the gun on David, you know, that is another kind of a comic book, uh, you know, trope of mm-hmm. the friend friend needing to prove that their friend or their family member or whatnot is a superhero. Right.
1: Yeah, I'd agree um, with that.
0: I mean, it's uh, not in a comic book, but in the director's cut, the Donner cut of Superman 2, that's what Lois does to Clark. When she starts to suspect that Clark right. is Superman, yeah. Yeah. she pulls a gun. Now, in the theatrical version, he trips and falls and puts <laughs> his hand into a fire. Um, very stupid. But... uh. <laughs> <laughs> but but again there's the the where she figures it out and she pulls the gun on him uh and of course you know we've had several other uh aspects of that where the superhero has to have to has to find a way out so that they don't reveal themselves yeah. which is which is what they do in this scene yeah they you know he has to find a way out because like we talked about with like the montage scene they clearly could have had him pull the trigger mm-hmm and now we've got a moment where the bullet, you know, bounced off of him, or the bullet, you know, just falls to the ground. You know, s- kind of sticks to him for a minute and then falls to the ground. Right. Um, but this is not that type of superhero movie. Right. And so they handle it beautifully, where uh, Bruce again just gives a great performance and you know turns it on his head and goes, you know, yeah, go ahead and shoot me. If you shoot me, you know, I'm I'm gone. I leave. Yeah. You know, uh you know, he's pretty much saying you're either going to shoot me and I'm going to die or you're going to shoot me and I'm going to pack my bags and I'm going to move. Right. Uh, which they had already alluded to that he was thinking about moving to New York earlier in the
1: the movie. Yeah. yeah. So I um so in the ways that they turn comic books on its head like you were just talking about uh the other big one to me is kind of this like symmetry ending with him as far as at the beginning of the movie he pulls his ring off and you see this flawed guy who's you know thinking about maybe uh, you know being unfaithful to his uh albeit estranged wife and and that sort of thing so you get this like uh you know kind of moment at the beginning of the movie but uh a really subtle one is the way in which he honors his wife um her desire for him not to be a violent man and to live a, a you know that so even when he takes down the man in orange granted it is a you know a fight it is a physical yes. struggle but he does it in arguably the least violent way you could possibly do it he just goes in yeah. headlocks that dude and then bull mm-hmm. rides him to the ground like He's just got him in a headlock and the guy's thrashing around, breaking stuff and throwing, you know, throws him into the wall. Yeah. Yeah. But he just doesn't let go of the headlock and chokes him out. And that to me is this really kind of subtle other side of him as as a moral person. Like he's still thinking Mm -hmm. about, you know, what his wife wants him to be. Yeah, it, to me, I think that's what I read into that scene, and I think it's really no, cool. yeah,
0: because he doesn't go in immediately, going straight for the bad guy. I mean, when he right. enters that house, he goes straight looking for the family. Right. You know, he finds the kids, he gets the kids out of there. Um, you know, he finds the wife, but then he sees the man in orange. Yeah. Um, or no, the man, man in kind Ar- of vice yeah, versa. Yeah, yeah. yeah, the man of orange sees him, pushes him out. Of the way Um, out. yeah, and then oh, which talk about. Talk about kind of a moving panel type thing. Yeah. The flipping of the camera. Yeah. You know, I can see that as a, as like four different panels going down a page.
1: And the lead up to it, you're seeing the close up of Bruce's face looking out the window and the the man in orange coming up behind him. Same thing. That's a, that's a panel. But uh, yeah, yeah, it it
0: appears with the, the flow of the curtain. You know, he just uh, all of a sudden appears there. Oh, but then the heartbreak of after he chokes out the man in orange yeah. and he goes to free the mom Yeah, and you realize that the mom she's she already dead. It. Yeah. Uh, but the, yeah.
1: uh, but yeah, to, to go back to the point, like he's, he's nonviolent in the, as much as one could be. And you also see that with his conversations with Elijah, uh, and Elijah talking about, um, uh, his choice of profession and he he's using terms like guardian and when yeah. you know when did you start needing to protect people protect and all people, this kind of yeah. stuff and so you know he's not the vigilante he's he's by no means you know batman uh going around you know busting skulls to to stop crime kind of thing like he just he's motivated to protect people and uh which i think plays really well into the writing in the sense that you know he's making the argument uh the glass character in particular is making the argument that comic books are this like primal man that it's and the comic is what's left of the myth that we have told about ourselves uh and that part of that is we believe that there are heroes there are guardians people who you have this primal need to uh to protect others. And so it's it's just really cool. It's very very well written and and nicely tied up in that sense to me.
0: Going back uh and we can talk about we can kind of hit any of our favorite scenes uh that we haven't already mentioned. <laughs> um but I remembered one. I again kind of pull back the curtain a little bit uh, again, you know, as I said Chad and I had already recorded this episode uh and then we had a technical issue where the recording, um, uh, had a, a, an error in it. Um, but I, it, I just remembered about a scene that we talked about that hasn't come up in our natural conversation here, but I do mm-hmm. want to bring it up. The scene where, uh, David is talking to the doctor in the hospital at the beginning, um, after he has recovered, uh, from, or not, not recovered. Cause there's nothing yeah, wrong so with him. Wasn't hurt, Yeah. Yeah, oh, but when he yeah. is sat up. Oh yeah. yeah,
1: it's heartbreaking. Yeah, you you think that, uh, or I did anyways, you have this interaction with the little girl while they're on the train. And so the doctor's explaining that there have been only two survivors of the, the accident. And you kind of, or I did anyways, again, uh, the viewer is, I feel led to believe that maybe it's this little girl, like maybe he saved her during the crash cuz you yeah. kind of get the sense that he's looking for her right before everything goes down. But yeah, because and that forefront. goes into that framing again. Oh man.
0: Because you when you see her, the whole scene between him and the flirting with the uh the agent yeah. is done
1: through between the, the middle of the
0: seats. Yeah. It's from her perspective. And then like you said right before the train crashes when everybody's all of a sudden realized something's wrong, he looks back, and she's gone. Yeah. Like you don't see her. Um, but
1: fast forward to being with the doctor, and and it's perfectly shot. Uh, David Dunn is in a room... Uh, in, uh, how do you word that? I'm trying to. <laughs> you, yeah. You're standing in a room. The as camera the is in a different room. Yeah. Yeah. And you're looking through a doorway to David Dunn on a examination table. And the doctor is just a little bit out behind the door frame talking to him. Uh, and in the foreframe, you just see something that's kind of out of focus. And you begin to realize that it's a sheet. Then you start to realize that it's a sheet over a person. And then you it's see like this torso bloom of person. blood that is just Mm -hmm. growing at a frightening rate and the doctor's explaining that uh yes while he's one of only two people who have lived that's not even going to be the case for much longer because the other person is dying directly in front of you and it's a it's a terrifyingly good shot uh, scene so
0: yeah, and so that's why. Yeah, I, I, we had, I had to bring that one back up since it didn't fall into our natural conversation yeah. this time around. I remembered that conversation from the first time we recorded, and I was like, I can't do this episode without talking about that scene again. The other um, thing
1: that you brought up that that uh, I kind of wanted to hit again, just because I think I thought it was a brilliant thing when you mentioned it, was the use. If I brought of, it up, of course, uh, it was a brilliant names. thing. Names, nice, uh, <laughs> 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 but but uh yeah the use of, of biblical names
0: oh yeah uh yeah Elijah David all
1: yeah. three male characters all, you know mm-hmm. that you meet are all biblical names you have Joseph David and Elijah um and you know what it, what was the what is your perceived meaning there
0: so the way I was looking at it was I started off with just the Elijah connection Mm-hmm. And how in this movie, even though he's a villain, even though he, he his motives are evil, uh, he is in essence the prophet for the coming savior.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, which yep. has the connection, yep. yeah, with Elijah there, um, and and so you know, I I don't know if M Night Shyamalan had that intention uh you know of course you can kind of go with david and you know being the the you know the 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 king and um you know such a favored um king and uh or even going all the way to david and goliath you know him being just the the small like unassuming hero, person yeah, yeah, the, yeah who ends up being the hero um well and jo- joseph i a favored yeah.
1: son uh yeah all that sort of stuff yeah you can you can read a lot into that um i kind of took it a little bit different way in the sense that i think he's just using things uh out of religion in myth building uh i think that's a shortcut to telling you you you're you're in a myth building you know kind of arena by using um culturally known religiosity whatever you want to call it uh I I, I kind of want to, I know we're just saying all of this on the fly, so it, I almost want to pick on what you said just a minute ago, though, about Elijah, his motives being evil. Are his motives evil? His actions, yeah. his actions are his evil. His
0: actions are evil, like but he, his motive murders, is to bring a superhero. <laughs> yeah. He
1: murders a ton of people. Actions are evil, but is his but motives his- evil? yeah
0: because his motive is to bring a superhero into the world yeah. to bring a guardian a protector into the world yeah
1: yeah i, I mean it's kind of crazy but i i think m. night Shyamalan made a fantastically um relatable villain in that like most of us would sit here and say we wouldn't murder 300 people to find you know the hero that's gonna save a ton of people but you can still you get the logic. It's one of those Thanos moments where you're like, mm-hmm. I can't see where he's coming yeah. from, you know. Like, <laughs> but
0: which again, you know, I've said this before several times. It makes a good villain when you kind yeah. of empathize or sympathize right. with the villain. You know, yeah. um, it makes for a good villain. Uh, so let's talk about. You know, we've kind of hit it here and there, but let's kind of uh, put it put it in a nice little bow. With this movie being right at the the beginning and right as the flame is getting started, you know, eight years later we would get the birth of the MCU uh-huh. with Iron Man. Iron Man. Um, what uh, what do you think? How do you think this movie impacted the superhero movies that we would get later?
1: So, um, I think that this was the first movie that didn't ask. How do we take a comic book and make it real world? It f- it really flips that paradigm upside down, in my opinion. And they took, how do you move the real world into a comic book? And I think you yeah. kind of see this um, successfully That's a good way to put mimicked that. later on. Uh, I wouldn't say the Dark Knight trilogy. I think that still falls into that first camp. How do we make... You know, well, comic books, I'll, real world.
0: I'll I'll agree with you on that. When it started, I think Batman Begins was definitely let's put a comic book, yeah, into the real world. But I think Dark, Dark Knight, Knight, yeah, kind of
1: blurs that line a yeah. yeah, did yeah, a better I agree job. Yeah, did a better job. But I, I think the MCU in particular, uh, I I, I kind of think subconsciously that that might be part of the reason why. Uh, iron man worked so well because that that is a believable this is happening in the regular real world kind of scenario and and so uh not a comic book being shoehorned into the real world uh, kind of situation um but uh, the grittiness definitely definitely left its mark on on comic book movies for quite some time uh you know the, oh, yeah. the fact that his uh superhero uniform is a poncho uh, yeah. and a security vest you know that he's wearing in the pouring rain in front of a chain link fence like you know these aren't yeah. these aren't your flashy which you know, he comic maintains
0: book. because he's wearing the same thing in glass yeah. you know when we yeah. we see the sequels uh
1: yeah he maintains that yeah so I, I just, I, it, it for sure left its mark on comic book movies. And I think it also was the first time that, um, that the reason for superheroes was also kind of normalized, you know, in, in a way, like I like how Glass's character really makes you believe that this isn't that far fetched, you know, that that, uh, that we have kind of taken this thing that's been with us throughout history and we've, we've overemphasized it and flashed it up and, and turned it into comic books, but that there's a core of truth in it as well. Because I I think that as comic book fans, we all deep down sort of believe that, like even if it's just a moral sense of it being a, a a real story uh, there is that. So I think it, it really broke comic books down to its essence and uh, oh, yeah. and allowed other movies to do the same.
0: No, I I wholeheartedly agree with you on that. You know, I I have said when people ask me about my love for Superman, I don't talk so much about his powers. I talk right. about what he represents. Yeah, you know the 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 person who always wants to help everybody, the person who sees the best in humanity. Right. You know. And, and, oh, that's, it that was a great way to put that. Uh So I, I totally agree with that. And, and everything you said, I mean, this movie stripped, stripped everything down, mm-hmm. you know, as, as dark and gritty as Batman 89 was, it was still a comic bookish world. Right. I mean, sure. the, even the, the sets, you know, the way <laughs> Tim Burton did the city, it, it, that you wouldn't see that in the real world. Um, and even when I talked about Batman Begins, you know, the, the there bullet are, train going through the middle,
1: there aren't giant industrial art deco plants full of vats of acid in your town, Laramie. I don't know. No, what no about? there's, there's like... not. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Or, or giant, uh, like Atlas looking statues that are holding up parts of buildings and bridges and hundred, um,
1: uh, story tall cathedrals and you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: so i mean because even even other yeah yeah (laughs) uh even other comic book movies that were coming around out around this time i mean blade blade kind of felt a little real world world worldish but then it had to have that scene at the end where they're in this you know crypt looking ancient uh tomb and that brought it back into the comic book world. But that's also a uh, vampire
1: movie. I kind of feel like Blade cheated yeah. a little bit. Like just being <laughs> honest, it was like what comic book could we take and make a movie and people wouldn't necessarily know about it? Like that was Blade. Uh, I think yeah. the better example is Well, X-Men. people
0: forget that was Iron Man too. I mean, Iron Man, yeah. people tend to forget now that it's been, you know, on all- it know, wasn't super. However well many known, yeah. Yeah, as a comic Iron book Man player. was not a top tier character right. in Marvel. No, I agree. So yeah.
1: But uh but I, I think the the better example is is X Men because they they had to find their own way. It was pre unbreakable. They had to find their own way to kind of how much do we lean into this being a comic book movie, like visually, the whole nine yards. And and you can definitely see it's different. And I think I would argue that you can see it change post unbreakable i think you see it become a little more even in the the x men franchise as the movies in my opinion didn't get better but the the aesthetic i think did uh, i think in the first movie you see a little more of like the colorful x men typical panels and uh, mm-hmm. and it looks a little more like you know the the X Men cartoon you had watched when you were a kid, and they even reference that and make fun of it a little bit in, in that yeah. they're not gonna wear those blue and yellow spandex, yeah, yeah. But uh, but they still have to kind of play with that line, and then Unbreakable is like you don't need to play with it at all. You could strip all that away, and you could still make yeah. a superhero movie. So, but anyways, yeah.
0: All right, let's just get into it. Uh, yeah, I I I mean. You you all know where we're headed, uh, <laughs> bag it, stack it, or trade it. Uh, go ahead, Chad. How would you treat Unbreakable if it was in fact a comic book?
1: Uh, I mean, it's an issue number one mint. It is for sure going in a bag. So, <laughs> but uh, uh I mean, it's a great origin story. I, it's top three comic book movies in my opinion. I, it, I it's fantastic.
0: Oh, I, I agree. This isn't just a baguette. This is a send it off to be graded, uh, you know, sealed. Yeah. Um, you know, because like you said, it's one of the best origin stories that they have ever told in a movie. Um, yeah. and you said top three, uh, in two thousand eleven. Now again, two thousand eleven. So this is MCU has started. Yeah. Time magazine ranked Unbreakable as the fourth best superhero movie of all time. I believe it. Fourth. Best. Um, I know that... uh, I think The Incredibles was ranked number one on that list.
1: (laughs) Nice. You you mean the best Fantastic Four movie ever made? Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, And then uh, The Dark Knight and Spider-Man 2 were the other two that uh, topped it. Which I'm I'm not going to disagree with that. Uh, So... Um, by the way, another movie on that list is another movie you and I have discussed. The Rocketeer was on their list. Oh, nice of, yeah. of the top ten greatest superhero movies of all yeah. time. Again, this was back in 2011. so it's a little outdated of a um, a ranking uh, I, or a, a best of list. But I mean, may,
1: maybe we're kind of you know a little biased at this point because we've been just heaping praise on this movie for an hour. But I kind of I would argue that. Uh, Unbreakable's probably held up better than maybe two of the three that were ahead of it <laughs> in that listing uh, yeah uh, I don't know
0: yeah no I, I I'll agree with you I I could see it definitely it's held up better than I still think Spider-Man 2 is you know the best of that trilogy mm-hmm. Um, but I could see Unbreakable kind of holds up better than it does now Yeah, but because yeah Unbreakable it's like we've kind of talked about throughout this hour is it's a superhero movie that looks more on the inside than it does on the outside. It looks mm-hmm. at what does a person go through right, when they've come to this realization that they have powers um, that humanizes a comic book character and, yeah. uh, you know, and and again, I think that M. Night Shalomon and all those involved in making this movie look and feel the way it does, you know, it showed. Hey, look, this is what you can do with this genre. You know, th- this these are the stories you can tell, mm-hmm. and and I think we saw that when uh, Iron Man then showed up in two thousand eight. You know, uh, when Nolan did Batman, there was a lot more about. Bruce Wayne and what Bruce Wayne was going through. There was a lot more about Tony Stark and what Tony Stark was experiencing. Um, And, you know, we get to see more and more of that, but I I totally agree. Uh, This has been a great conversation. um, And I I hope it is a fitting, uh, fitting way to honor Bruce Willis. Uh, Of course he is still with us. This isn't, uh, we're not memorializing Bruce Willis, but we definitely want to give him our honor and uh, and just know that we have appreciated his work. Um, you know, I, Die Hard is probably my number two movie. Uh, no offense, Shawshank Redemption's always going to be number one for me. Uh, but Die Hard's probably my number two movie. Uh, Unbreakable is one of my favorites uh, that we're talking about, and th- there's so many more. I'm a huge Bruce Willis fan. As Chad has known long before my <laughs> love for, uh, for comic book movies, yeah. I was all at uh, always after Bruce Willis movies, good, bad,
1: I didn't care. Um, Asking the if, rest of us, hey, do you guys want to watch Bruno the Kid? Like, uh, yeah. yeah, I don't know, maybe. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> hey, you, yeah,
0: yeah. H- have you ever seen Sunset? Let's watch Sunset. Let's watch Hudson Hawk the... again.
1: Uh, oh. uh, no, I'm good, Laramie. It was <laughs> Look, that's my that's one of my guilty
0: pleasures. I actually like Hudson Hawk. Uh,
1: Just giving you a hard time.
0: No, I understand. Uh but yeah, so uh a- again from from uh from me again, I know I stated all of my my thoughts and all that uh in the previous episode, but uh this is just this this is a great movie to see a great performer mm-hmm. uh like Bruce Willis. And uh I-, I definitely recommend that if you have not seen Unbreakable, and I know we've spoiled a lot of it, but it's still worth the watch. Yeah. Um you know, again, there's very little. If you really go back and listen, there's very little that Chad and I. I mean, we're nitpicking if we talk oh, about yeah. anything negative. Yeah, we're nitpicking. Um The the you know we we alluded to it earlier. We're not a big fan of the title card at the oh, end, man. You know that you know oh. Elijah Glass served time in a mental facility, and you're
1: expecting bong um, bong like yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, uh not a not a fan of that. But uh I but, mean other than that, so oh, I yeah, am gonna put move. you on the spot. Uh okay. Bruce Willis performance. Where does this rank all time Bruce Willis performances? Oh yeah. top three,
0: um, off the cuff. Uh you know, and and again, as I, I mentioned, he's such a diverse performer. Yeah. That comparing his performance here with comparing it to like uh, you know, <laughs> moonlighting, moon <lighting>. yeah, <laughs> yeah. Dave, playing David Addison and moonlighting. Uh, you know, comparing it to to John McClane. Uh, I mean,
1: yeah, it it, it he's so. But but, but again, that, so you're that's looking what we at, do as fans. Yeah. Though you make lists. Where, <laughs> yes. Where does he line up? I don't know. But yeah. yeah,
0: but as acting performances, yeah, this is definitely top three. Yeah. Uh, I would probably have to think a little bit more to to pinpoint it more so, but I, I would definitely, definitely put this in top three. Uh,
1: yeah. I think pure acting, it's
0: one or two. Yeah. Very mean, well. Really, very well could be. Whew, it's great. Yeah. It's a great, great, great performance. All right. Well, thanks, Chad, uh, for joining me. Um, I, I look forward to our conversations always. and. We try to keep them short, uh, (laughs) as best we we can. Yeah, Yeah, we try. I'm not saying we're successful, but we try. Oh oh, man, Uh, I will apologize to everyone listening. Uh, The original recording for this was only like an hour and eight minutes. Uh, So, (laughs) yeah. So, so you do get a little bit of longer one on the uh, the take two of this episode. But thanks everybody if you did uh, hold on to listen to this one. Um, you know, we're going to immediately uh, come back uh, on Monday with uh, the one shot where I finish up my uh, review and uh, walkthrough of the Mandrake the Magician uh, movie serials from, the 19, from 1939, and uh, we finally get to find out what happens at the end. Uh, but uh, today, again, thank you, Chad. Uh, thank you, Bruce Willis, for a, an amazing career um, that we can uh, look back on fondly and uh, enjoy and uh, we wish you the best uh, with whatever life um, has in store for you Um, but uh, anything you want to say Chad
1: Uh, no just uh, thanks for letting me um, you know say thanks to one of your uh, movie icon heroes so it's been a blast (laughs) yeah all right thanks everybody for moving
0: panels I'm Laramie Wells and I'll see you on the other side of the page What seems to be the problem, pal? There's just so much pain in the world, so many issues, I don't think I can bear it.
1: Well, friendo, it sounds like you could use a dose of pop culture roulette.
0: Pop culture roulette? What's that? Some sort of pop culture-themed podcast or something?
1: That's right, sonny boy.
0: When hope seems far, dive into some PCR! But I already get my entertainment news from variety.
1: Huh, that's pretty good. If you're a chucklehead, PCR gives you news you need, condensed, unfiltered, and raw, from three nerds who know a little something about something.
0: Wow, okay, sign me up.
1: That's the spirit, Pop Culture Roulette. New episodes every Monday, available on all major podcast directories.